Welcome back. See what's going on. Data experts who got it right. <coughs> Streamed two days ago. Midas Touch. Did I listen to this already? Ah. What's happening to you? And welcome back to our continuing midterm elections coverage here on the Midas Touch Network. I am Ben Micellis, joined by my brothers Brett and Jordy Micellis. In a moment, we will be joined by Simon Rosenberg, a political analyst in his 17th political cycle. And notably, he was there in the 1992 Clinton election war room, a leader in the DCCC's efforts leading the blue wave in 2018, and someone who has been spot on in reviewing and projecting the data for this election cycle. And we will also be joined by Tom Bonnier, the CEO of Target Smart whose proprietary data analysis of early voter turnout and voting trends was spot on in this election cycle. And while the media focused on false narratives of the red wave and doom and gloom for Democrats, we had both Simon and Tom as guests leading up to the elections right here on the Midas Touch Network, and we rolled up our sleeves and spent considerable time going through the data and where it was pointing because the data is the data and when there was 40 million votes early votes that existed simon and tom were there extrapolating what we learned from that data set as opposed to the polls that were just being pushed most of them by right-wingers to try to push a novel concept, mm. uh, a narrative. So I'm excited to welcome them uh, in the show in a little bit. And one of the things I want to show our viewers and listeners, though, is how Simon, particularly, was being mocked on Fox by Laura Ingraham and others <laughs> for his analysis and his projections leading to the midterm. We have that clip. Let's put it up right now. More than half the polls conducted in October have been, been conducted by Republican firms. And that mm -hmm. means that basically we can't trust the data on real clear politics or 538 any longer because it's essentially re uh, Republican propaganda. Oh, Simon, come on. Joining us now to respond is the president and co on the real clear politics site. And averages as it's all Republican propaganda. Yep. Your reaction tonight. Yeah, totally right. I've got a couple points to make. Number one, um, it's actually been the Republican firms like Trafalgar and others who've been more accurate over the last three cycles than uh, most polling firms that have been. Famous last words. Famous last words. Uh -huh. Simon Rosenberg being torched by Fox News. Trafalgar. <laughs> he was proven right, and not to sound like, you know, some internet hipster, but I kind of feel like we 
we can get some of the assignment in pounds before, it was cool. I feel like now I'm seeing them go and then make the rounds on all the MSNBCs, on, on all the stations. But I gotta say, I think we were like, you know, we were like, kind of oh, we, were definitely, we, were, we were definitely hip to it, and the mighty were hip to it. Yeah, Brett, you gave that analogy earlier with the people who go to the rock band when there were like 20 people in the crowd. I like to say that when they before they were full rock stars, even though we knew they were rock stars, we were those little we were that crew in the crowd right there. But let's welcome them to the show right now, Simon Rosenberg and Paul Bonya. Welcome to the Midas Touch podcast. We got both of you. Let's go. Let's go. Look at this energy. So, so, so great to see yeah. you guys. So, so here's what I know. I know uh, as a good interviewer, you know when to shut up and when the people who have the data and who the people want to listen to, and it's you two right now. So, Simon, let me just start with you and your overall reaction to the results so far from these midterms. Yeah, you know, we weren't surprised. I mean, our basic view of the election was that this was going to be a close competitive election, uh, that Democrats, you know, had overperformed, uh, you know, over the last few months in all the various measures, right, in Kansas, and the four, five house specials, and voter reds, and, and fundraising, and the early vote, and that... You know, that we were going to bring it uh, in this election on election day, and that what we had seen was Republicans with constant underperformance, right? They underperformed in the specials and in Kansas and in voter reds and fundraising and the early vote. And that, you know, as I wrote on election day itself, it's like all of a sudden the Republicans are going to find their mojo after not having it for the last five months. Possible, but it's also not likely. And so we were optimistic that we were going to overperform expectations, and I think that's what's happened. Tom, how'd your data hold up? Yeah, I mean, first, can I say I'm kind of upset that you just made me watch Fox News, but I'll get it. <laughs> that was actually a great clip. I hadn't seen it, and now I want, yeah, to, no. I didn't want to watch it on, on a loop. But Simon, you had yeah. seen that, right? Obviously, you, you, I'm sure you had seen that. No, I actually hadn't seen it, so I appreciate it. You know, I was a, I was a regular commentator on Fox for 17 years. What? So they know me wow. very, very well there, and so, um, you know, uh, they were coming it, for you specifically. I know. It's okay. I can handle it. I appreciate it. <laughs> All right. Sorry to interrupt, Tom. Yeah, no, it was great. It was a, a great clip. I How did the data hold up? I, I mean, it, it, it held up very well. That's the great thing Funny. is if you just trust the data, then you're not putting yourself on an island, though I think Simon and I felt like we were occupying a very lonely island at times. Uh, Twitter it can be an awful place uh, when you're running counter to the the narrative. Um, but look, there were two different worlds. And we talked about this when we got together just a couple of days ago, though it feels like it was maybe about two weeks ago. Um, there were two different worlds. There was what we were seeing, everything that Simon talked about with the voter registration data, the special elections, the Kansas election, uh, uh, the voter registration surges among women, younger voters. Simon did such a wonderful job then promoting the early vote. It was consistent. That was the one thing we could say, but it was all pointed in one direction, and that was democratic intensity. And then there was the other world, which was the polling, which was like this just world that had gone absolutely crazy. I called it at one point a choose-your-own-adventure, which probably dates me, but those were books that were fun when I was a kid, and you could kind of choose which ending you want. That's a kind way of putting it, honestly. Like... Um, there was a lot of very crazy bad polling there, as, as, as you showed in your clip. Simon did a great job calling them out on that, and I think it actually did change the narrative in an effective way. But yeah, all the numbers that we held up, seeing that 
democratic intensity trajectory consistently, it's exactly what you would have expected to see on election day, which is, as Simon said, a very close and competitive election. Simon, what were you looking for when you would analyze Tom's data leading up to the election? What trends were you looking for and how were you able to extrapolate the narrative, which was the narrative of the midterms? Yeah. So first of all, you know, I wrote a piece a year, a year ago saying that I thought this was not going to be a typical midterm, that the fact that Republicans had made, I think, a, a huge error, which is they ran towards a politics, MAGA, which had just been rejected by the American people twice in overwhelming numbers, meant that they were going to lower, you know, have a lower ceiling. They were going to have a harder time taking advantage of their opportunities because there were just going to be a lot of people who may have been disappointed in Joe Biden who just weren't going to go back and vote MAGA. So I was always of the belief that they were going to struggle a little bit in the, in the midterms because of this. And then what we looked at with Tom's data and this is what was so remarkable and why I was so confident in what we were seeing, is the data was the same every day. It was just unbelievably consistent. I mean, just imagine that, you know, the Democratic number was 50-39 for like 10 days. It didn't really change. And that meant the data was like real. It was just solid. It was coming in the same every day. And in fact, in the last week to 10 days, it got better and better and better in many places. And so there was no contradictory data. The second thing that also made me confident was that in the final week, or the final 10 days, if you take out the partisan tracking polls nationally, we were up by about a point and a half. And in some of the polls, we're showing movement towards the Democrats. Even Rasmussen's last poll, Friday before the election, had us gaining two points. Well, that was consistent with what we were seeing in the early vote data, right, where things were getting better. For us. And I remember Chris Eliza wrote this column about a week ago saying the bottom had fallen out to the Democratic Party. And oh, I was boy. Yeah, and I was worried. By the way, he, <laughs> he gave me a shout out on Twitter today. Um, but the um, I was worried about the bottom falling out, and then we'd go to the data and like things were getting better. And so Tom and I would say, like, well, we're just not I mean, there's a lot of people voting, and if the bottom was falling out, we would see it, and we weren't seeing it. And so I think part of what we have to recognize is that what Tom built, the site that he and his team built, this Target Early, is an amazing thing. We were we had access to, to what was happening in the early vote that many other, you know, it was public, right? But other people weren't using it, and they weren't doing the same kind of rigorous analysis we were doing. Um, and, you know, hats off to Tom, frankly, for creating this public resource where he, you know, they spent their own money to do this, to make it available to everybody. Um, you know, it was used proprietarily also by NBC News. But, you know, part of it is that um, this idea that, you know, well, you just have to dismiss the early vote, which is what the Republican argument was. you got to be kidding me. I mean, lots of people were voting every day. Tons of information. Isn't an election about people voting? I mean, it's not about polling. Polling is not an election. Voting is an election. And we were being given mountains of data about the election. Why the media chose to ignore it is really one of the big questions we'll be talking about over the next, you know, couple months. So, Tom, to you, why did the why do you think when you had this data set of 40 million votes, which clearly shows a trend, why were you being ignored when you're screaming from the rooftop? Look, <laughs> look at what the data saying. Why were you being ignored? <laughs> well, well, first, if I can say, you know, Simon mentioned my team. I'm very uncomfortable way. getting uh, any of the credit for this. We have an incredible team at Target Smart. 
built this resource, builds the database, does the incredible work. They deserve all the credit here. In terms of the media, it wasn't shocking to me. Uh, There's a lot of bad early vote analysis out there uh, in prior elections. There was a lot of bad early vote analysis out there. It's something that um, it takes a little bit of skill to do, and it takes a lot of context. And that's what we've tried to do with the target early side to say, well, yeah, look at this. But when you look at Pennsylvania and you see Democrats plus 50, view that in the context of prior elections. Plus 50 is a huge number. And Pennsylvania turned out looking like a great number anyhow, because in prior elections, it was about plus 44, I think, Democratic. So we could look at that in that context and know it's better. But the reality was, I think the media felt a little bit burned by bad analysis in the past. And frankly, I think there was the bigger issue the analysis didn't line up with their expectations and their priors. They were expecting this to be a red wave. There's no question, right? I don't think that's a controversial statement. If you turned on any cable news outlet across the spectrum, as we got into the last week, especially the expectation was with some exceptions uh, that this was going to be an inevitable red wave. And this was data that was contrary to that point. But as I've said again and again and again, if you, can look at a database of 45 million people who voted in this election. We know they voted, and you can't draw some conclusions from that. You're doing this wrong. We talked about this on Monday. You know, all the caveats that go that y'all use the great the great metaphor of a football game and the Raiders being up at <laughs> halftime doesn't mean they're going to win. And that's what we looked. We said, look, this isn't a guarantee that Democrats are going to win. But what we can say is they've built up a lead. It's a strategic advantage, and that lead is bigger as a percentage of the early vote than it was in 2020. You can draw your own conclusions from there, but that seems relevant. Simon, tell us about the gamesmanship of a lot of these right-wing partisan polls (laughs) that try to flood the zone here. Had we seen that before? This is your 17th election cycle. Was this kind of a And now what happens to those polls, one of them was referenced as Trafalgar, whatever they're called, which we always, which, which is not accurate, but a lot of these partisan polls. So tell us about that. Yeah, look, this was an unprecedented effort to gain the polling averages. I mean, there's just no question that's what happened. Um, anyone who believes there was something else happening, it's just ridiculous. And the question is why, right? And what I've come to believe now is that I think Republicans knew they weren't doing well in the election. I think they knew they were having problems with intensity and and that they did this to sort of create, um, to make their own voters, their donors, their community feel better about how things were going. And I, and I think it's just like the idea that a party could have actually de- tried to delegitimize the last election and tried to install illegally their guy in as president and then led an attack on the Capitol where people died. The idea that they could like spend a couple million bucks to dump a bunch of polls into the system to gain the averages, that's like miniature golf, right? Compared to what they did last time. I mean, this is like, and so it's clear to me this happened. And I think it was, and what I came to believe is that it was a sign of weakness. It was a sign, they were telling us that they didn't think they had it and that they needed to create a different kind of narrative. It's so disappointing to me is that so many people in the media and so many people who are actually experts, right, smart people who study elections, fell for it. And that's the thing that has kind of been shocking to me. And, and it's been interesting to watch, you know, Nate Silver, for example, who I think contributed to this false red wave narrative, you know, try to reconcile, 
you know, what he did, because he, you know, he, he was a little bit of an Elon Musk here in the last few weeks, right, where we're just going to let everything get on there. And, you know, even though we're allowing polls on here of high school kids and Canadian firms and a Brazilian firm and all these Republican polls, which are clearly, you know, BS, right, in terms of the way their numbers, I'm going to just let, you know, the average, you know, my secret sauce that creates waiting and all this stuff was somehow going to allow that stuff to disappear. And of course, that isn't what happened. I mean, Republicans were not only pushed the averages down by this campaign, but then they were able to show the image of the site where there's like six consecutive polls showing Warnock down, right? And this was used as propaganda. And so I do think that the the people, I'm very disappointed, honestly, in many of the people that I've worked with for a long time who are political analysts, who are smart people, who were getting played, I think in many cases they knew they were getting played, but they couldn't figure out a way out of it. And as we discussed, I think, in the show the other day, this felt a little bit like, to me, what happened with the Russian disinformation in the 2016 election. I mean, the media knew this stuff was coming from Russia. They knew it was part of a, 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 a Russian campaign, and they continued to report on it because Republicans were making noise about it, so they had to make their report on the fact that Republicans we're talking about this information. And so we've got to be smarter here, right? People got played really hard. There's going to have to be a really big conversation about how to prevent this from ever happening again. Um, and I've got a lot of ideas, and I think Tom and I will be weighing in on this you know, in, a, in a few weeks. Well, I want to hear what some of those ideas are. But first, Tom, any <laughs> surprises? And what are you looking at right now? We still don't have the complete picture. So people want to know, you've got it right so far. What are you, what are you looking for right now? You're on mute, Tom. Yeah. In terms of surprises, I'm I'm making all sorts of mistakes. I, I slept two hours. <laughs> uh, no, I, we get it. If it was Brett, we wouldn't forgive him. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> if Brett was very quick to forgive me on that one. Uh, in elections like these, you tend to have surprises. Oops. Damn. Fuck. Hello, I am Sergio Magaña. I am a practitioner and teacher right <clears throat> screwed it up or pressed this wrong button so anyway we, we kinda I listened to this so this is same <coughs> same same old One hour ago, Trump kids tell him to fuck off and retire from politics. <laughs> remember that earlier this afternoon, we did a bit of a deep dive into how the entire world of Voldani is crumbling around him. Not just the political stuff, but also all of the people close to him are getting sick and tired of his antics. Sick and tired of how he's ruining their days and honestly dragging their entire lives into the gutter along with him. And that's exactly what continues to happen because we have some brand new reporting, both on the political side 
and the family side. Because on the political side, people in the GOP are literally calling Donald Trump a ghost that's haunting them as they try to move forward in political life and try to move forward in the political space. While at the same time, his family is getting split apart by his BS with some of them, particularly the dumb ones, wanting to continue backing his political career, whereas some of the others, like Ivanka, are going to daddy and making it very clear. She is demanding he shut up, retire, and stop ruining her life. Let's start with the political side. Um, and as the Democrats are, you know, thinking about if they're if they're smart nationally to try to use this moment to sort of reform or form a coalition that includes disaffected independents and disaffected Republicans, the longer Trump stays in the conversation, the longer he's out there, I imagine you'll have more and more Republicans uh, either either leaving their party or voting with Democrats. They're not saying it's going to be a huge number everywhere, but it'll be just enough to, to, to kind of replay uh, a lot of the a lot of the races that we saw in the midterm elections. And I imagine that Republicans nationally are looking at that and saying, yeah, we can't continue to let that happen. He can't continue to hurt hurt our future, no matter what he's done in the present. Meantime, I'm making a personal note to celebrate that 10-year anniversary tonight in an appropriate <laughs> way. Thank you for that. So, Congressman, Sorry. I think DeSantis has, has adopted kind of an interesting strategy, basically not responding, staying above the fray, right, while he appears on television leading another hurricane response. I mean, whether or not Donald Trump is watching DeSantis on TV down in Florida, what do you make of that dynamic? Well, Chris, the hurricane has certainly given Ron DeSantis an excuse to ignore the former president, which I do think makes the most sense for now. But this is not something he's going to be able to do forever. At some point, he is going to have to confront Donald Trump, and he's going to have to do so in a way that does not alienate the Trump base. I remind people that Ron DeSantis came up through the Trump system with the support of uh, Donald Trump's base. So he has to figure out this divorce uh, in a very careful way, or it could cost him. Some people think that if these two keep clashing, it could open a lane for another candidate uh, that isn't in the middle of this kind of dispute. So this is a very tricky time for the Republican Party, and eventually we're going to have to hear a response from Ron DeSantis. Kristen, you covered the Trump White House. What are your sources telling you about this event on Tuesday? Is it a done deal? Is he going to announce for 2024? Well, I just spoke with a source familiar with the planning who says, look, at this point in time, it's all systems ago. And that is certainly the public message that former President Trump is sending. He commented on this and said, what's the reason to delay? Um, however, there is a divide within Trump world. Some of his allies are saying he absolutely needs to go forward with this announcement that any change in plans would look weak. However, there are some allies publicly. Jason Miller said this, Chris, and then Privately, some allies are saying he should delay and wait until after Georgia. And they are haunted to some extent by the last Georgia runoff, where former President Trump was essentially calling the election results into question. And they believe that may have depressed turnout. So it's a little bit of deja vu all over again. But there is this divide in the backdrop as former President Trump seems to be inching closer to this announcement, Chris. And Basil. 
Like, I think this is big, right? Like, all of this is happening for a reason. Again, I'm not praising the kids. I'm not at all. They don't deserve any credit. But the only reason why they want daddy to retire is because the benefits of him being in politics aren't there anymore. They don't want it because it's now more trouble than it was worth. There was a time when he was president and they could make a lot of money on the side that the BS was worth it. Like, the BS was a lot. And I'm guessing it made day-to-day -day life kind of stressful, but you put up with it. Now it's not even worth it. And so a lot of them are saying with his falling political star, it's just not worth it. And that's what a lot of the politicians are saying. They're making it clear that we put up with Donald Trump BS before, but no longer. He is a ghost haunting us. He's haunting us in these midterms that we just blew legendarily, a historic failure for the Republicans. They're going to lose the Senate. I'm very confident of that. I think that it'll likely be 50-51 Democrat seats. But even more than that, there's a small chance they actually lose the House or have one of the smallest House majorities in history. And at least some of that, a big part of it, is the fault of Donald Trump and the people Donald Trump empowered within the GOP. And so his family is feeling the exact same thing. I want you to watch this clip, which explores the divisions in the family, and then we're going to read you some reporting, including Ivanka and his wife Melania wanting him to retire because so long as he's in politics, he is ruining their lives. CNN has learned that members of Donald Trump's family are divided about the former president's 2024 aspirations. Yeah, now, this is all happening as the family is gathering to watch Tiffany Trump walk down the aisle at Mar-a-Lago. CNN's Kate Bennett joins us now with these details. Kate, if it was a family affair inside the Trump White House, you're finding out that may not necessarily be the case for the next run. What are you hearing? Well, I spoke to several people who are close with Jared Kushner and Ivanka Trump, and they tell me that the couple is not going to be involved in a potential Donald Trump's second run for the White House. Uh, that includes campaigning for him. Uh, that includes should he win and being inside the White House. And this is a big change for Jared. Your body, a bunch of crap, is a slap in the face. It's time to shake things up. It costs. Your all-in-one, certified organic, too delicious to be healthy, healthy plant protein shake. This is the standard American diet. I'm sad. He's fast, comforting. For Jared and Ivanka, of course, they were key in the Trump administration the first time around. They were certainly uh, two of his most cl close advisors. Uh, everything went through Jared Kushner, as we know, as we read through the years during the Trump administration. Ivanka Trump, not only his daughter, but a very close confidant for him as well. But in the two years since the White House, the couple has decided they are no longer interested in politics. They have moved on, whereas perhaps their father has not uh, from politics. Now, I will say this, as the family is gathering for Tiffany's wedding this weekend in Mar-a-Lago. Donald Trump Jr. and his girlfriend, Kimberly Guilfoyle, are on board. Uh, I am told that J Don Jr. will campaign for his father should he decide to run, uh, that he will be one of his advisors. Um, same goes for Eric Trump, the other uh, adult Trump son, and that he will be involved. But certainly it is a change for Donald Trump should he run not to have Jared Kushner, not to have Ivanka Trump by his side. This is a family that post-White House has definitely split in terms of how they see their own futures and whether politics is involved. Uh, and Jared and Ivanka have decided that it is not for them. 
You see it there, the divisions. We've talked a bit about it, how it's ruining the wedding of his youngest daughter. But that's not the focus here. The focus is on the divisions in the family because some of them want him to continue. I guess Eric and Don Jr., again, the dumbest Trump kids. There's always a debate who's dumber, Eric or Don Jr. But I think it's safe to say that those guys are one in two. You're not necessarily sure which one is number one, which one is number two, but they are one in two. They apparently wanted to keep going. Ivanka and, and Melania very much do not. Here's just some reporting. It says, neither Ivanka Trump nor Jared Kushner are interested in taking active roles in a Trump 2024 campaign or a second tenure at the White House, despite their previously prominent advisory roles during his first presidential term. According to a source close to Ivanka, she would never go back to that life, describing her as feeling done with Washington since the day she left. Another source pointed out to Bennett that Ivanka's complete absence from the campaign trail was proof of her lack of interest in politics. Kushner was similarly uninterested in joining the Trump 2024 train, with sources as describing him as having moved on. Don Jr. and Eric, however, were enthusiastically participating with their father running for president for a third time, and with Donald Jr. emerging as a key figure in the future of Trumpian politics, supplanting Ivanka and Jared prior places in the inner circle, and having none of his stepmother, brother, stepmother, sister, and brother-in-law's hesitancy about another Trump presidency. And it notes here that Donald Trump has specific issues with Ivanka and Melania. It says, Donald Trump has been boldly hinting at a 2024 presidential run for quite some time now, but there are reportedly a few family members who are not too keen on his White House ambitions for a second time around. It seems that daughter Ivanka Trump and wife Melania Trump are on the same page about this, which is rare given their notoriously chilly relationship. Calling it a family divided, a source told OK Magazine that the, that the recent FBI search warrant raid of Mar-a-Lago home is giving Melania cold feet about stepping back into the political arena. She's hoping that if they stay away from Washington, it'll make the family's legal problems go away. And Ivanka apparently agrees with her stepmother's assessment of the situation, and both are begging him to announce that he will not be running. It's not just the legal issues that has the family running scared, it's the fact that Melania and Ivanka both miss being the toast of the town. They had a pretty easy life in New York before Donald Trump weighed into the swamp, and Melania and Ivanka are sick of the endless investigations and attention. They want to go back to their fabulous lives. They just want this all to end. And that's where we're at, guys. Where we're at is that this family is falling apart in part because Donald Trump's political career is shattered and the benefits of being a crony political family in Washington no longer outweigh the risks and all of the trouble. And so as they all gather this weekend, understand that, that what Ivanka wants from daddy is for him to shut his mouth, get out of politics, because in her mind, that protects her. She feels that all of the civil and criminal investigations into daddy, some of which hit her directly, but all of which at least hit her indirectly and hit the family indirectly, that's going to go away if he retires. I don't know if that's true, but there's I, that's her argument. And so that's what we're seeing right now. Everyone wants Trump out of politics, seemingly, except the MAGA cult and his two dumb sons. Besides that, his wife, his daughter, and most of the GOP want this SOB to retire and go away. Publishing a book has never been easier. Marketing a book has never been more difficult. If you're thinking about publishing a book and selling that book, you are in the right. Right. Let's see. Oh, oh.
Dumps when I get about Arizona and Tokyo's it has full blown meltdown over election results on air. Don't find me connect the text. sleeves and governing and here's a lesson to take from Ted last Cruz night look why did the democrats down. do better than expected because for two years they've governed as liberals they've governed as whacked out lefty nut jobs and you know what that did that excited their base that excited a bunch of young voters that came out in massive numbers because when you actually stand for something your base gets excited there's a lesson for republicans to learn which is when we have a majority next year we damn well better act like it and use it now look i'm not saying that i'm deriving joy from the misfortune of someone like ted cruz but yeah no that's exactly what i'm saying here, Ted Cruz is engaging in arguably the least self-aware postmortem after Republicans failed to conjure up anything close to the promised red wave that they'd spent the last few weeks filleting themselves over. So let's jump into a little bit of what Ted is saying here. Now, he starts off by saying that Democrats won only because they governed as liberals, as whacked-out left-wing nutjobs. Now, first of all, I think the point that Cruz is trying to convey here, underneath the oozing partisan hackery, is that when you govern in a way that helps people, people will reward you. That concept might be unfamiliar to Republicans, because they don't actually have any policies, and so there's nothing for the voters to reward. Republicans run on nothing but fear porn, and while it works pretty effectively in terms of scaring the shit out of people, those people aren't actually better off by keeping those Republicans in office. There aren't any noticeable benefits because Republicans don't offer any noticeable benefits. They just scream about pronouns and fake litter boxes and classrooms and fentanyl and Halloween candy. At some point, people are going to realize that paying lawmakers and senators hundreds of thousands of dollars a year to scare you about things that don't exist probably isn't worth the money. Especially considering, on the flip side, that when Democrats are in charge, things do change. They do make good on their promises. In just two years, with the thinnest of majorities, Democrats made sure that all COVID tests and vaccines were completely free. They passed funding for the first upgrade of our infrastructure in our lifetimes. They began the process of EV charging stations across the United States. They passed the biggest climate investment in the history of the world and passed the CHIPS Act, both of which, together, resulted in an avalanche of companies announcing investments in the United States, including Toyota for Solar, Sparks, Corning, LG, Honda, Micron, Qualcomm, and Intel, just to name a few. That means fewer supply chain disruptions, fewer supply costs, lower product prices, and more jobs. Democrats got the government to negotiate lower drug prices. They capped out-of-pocket costs for seniors at $2,000 a year and insulin costs for Medicare recipients at $35 a month. Democrats forgave student loan debt for 43 million American borrowers. Democrats got the first gun safety bill passed in three decades that'll keep guns out of the hands of domestic abusers, fund run flag laws in the states and expand background checks for those between 18 and 20 years old. Democrats pardoned federal marijuana convictions and started the process of removing cannabis as a Schedule One drug. Those are all tangible benefits for Americans. All of those things help us. All of those things are popular. They were what Democrats ran on. And without a single vote to spare, they got those things done. That's why people voted for Democrats, because those elected officials actually showed that keeping them in power was worth it. And granted, Ted Cruz pretends that Biden and the Democrats were pandering to the far left. Of that list of legislative wins that I just ran through, which of those are far left? Which of those are meant to coddle the...
communist forces of the Democratic Party. We're talking about making healthcare affordable for seniors. Is that for leftists? We're talking about investing in renewable energy and bringing in hundreds of thousands of new jobs and investments into this country. Is that for the leftists? We're talking about upgrading our nation's crumbling infrastructure. Is that for leftists? These people like to rail against the far left, and yet when they're asked to cite any specific examples of Democratic policies that pander to the extreme of our party, they can't. All they do is yell about vague leftist policies that sound scary, but don't actually exist. So my challenge to Ted Cruz would be asking him, why not actually name those spooky policies instead of wailing about socialism on TV? But here's the best part. Cruz says this. When you actually stand for something, your base gets excited. That when you actually stand for something, your base gets excited. And I'm not sure if Ted Cruz did this by accident or on purpose, but what he's effectively saying is that Republicans don't actually stand for anything. And he's half right, so long as you don't count tax cuts for millionaires and billionaires, because they certainly stand for those. But otherwise, the Republican Party doesn't actually stand for anything. They claim to be the party of family values, and yet they've lined up behind Donald Trump, a guy who's paid God knows how much money for hush money payouts for affairs. Is that family values? They claim to be the party of fiscal responsibility, and yet the last time that Republicans controlled the government during the Trump era, they added $7.8 trillion to the debt and passed a tax cut that dried up all federal revenues when we needed the most during the pandemic. Pandemic. Is that fiscally responsible? They claim to be pro-military and yet refuse to vote for the PACT Act, which would give health care to sick American veterans because they were salty that Joe Manchin allowed the Democrats to pass the Inflation Reduction Act. Is that pro-military? They've claimed to be pro-police and yet did nothing as the Capitol Police were being assaulted by the mob who was attacking the Capitol on January 6th. Is that pro-police? They claim to be pro-states' rights, and yet they all signed on to the Texas lawsuit seeking to overturn the election results in four other states because they weren't happy with the outcome come back in 2020. Is that pro-states rights? So when Ted Cruz says that the Republican Party stands for nothing, this is one of those moments where he's actually being pretty honest. Of course, the irony here is that Ted Cruz is among the biggest offenders. He helped validate the events of January 6th by objecting to the election results, even though they were perfectly fair. He voted for the $1.9 trillion tax cut that dried up federal revenues to give a tax cut to millionaires and billionaires. He traffics in fear porn on a nightly basis on Fox to whip up the base. So let's be perfectly honest here. If Ted Cruz is looking for the culprit as far as the total lack of any steadfast principles is concerned on the right, he doesn't have to look too far. Also, one final note here. Ted Cruz is making it seem as if he's sweeping in to diagnose all of the party's problems like some neutral arbiter here. The guy was on the front lines, showing up on TV, campaigning for candidates during this entire midterm process. Here he is just a few days before the election. Yeah, listen, I am very, very optimistic. I, I think on election day, we're not just going to see a red wave. We're going to see a red tsunami. I believe Republicans are going to retake both the House and Senate. I think in the House, we're going to see big, big majorities, 30, 40, 50 seats, I think the order of magnitude of 2010. In the Senate, I think we're likely to end up at 53 or 54 Republicans. I think the most likely pickup in the country is Adam Laxalt in Nevada. I think he's going to make a terrific new senator. I think Herschel Walker is going to win in Georgia. I've been, I'm in the middle right now of a nationwide 17-state month-long bus tour. So I've been campaigning with these guys all over the country. I was with Herschel uh, in Georgia last week. I was with Adam a couple of weeks before that. I was with J.D. Vance last week. I think J.D.'s going to win. I think Dr. Oz is going to win uh, in Pennsylvania. I think we're going to have some big, big victories. And I also think Arizona, Blake Masters, and New Hampshire, General Baldock, both have a real shot at winning those races. And I think we have a puncher's chance in Colorado and in Washington state as well. So, I mean, I, I think this is going to be a big, big historic election.
In other words, he was the Republican Party's campaign. So I get that he wants to showcase himself now as the guy with all the answers, but if you're looking for what failed on the campaign trail for Republicans, it was quite literally Ted Cruz. Before you go, if you enjoyed this video and want to see more, please make sure to subscribe to my channel. You can click the thumbnail right here on the screen. And if you want to support my work even further, the best way is to subscribe to my podcast, No Lie with Brian Tyler Cup. Good stuff. QAnon experts land to perjury trader green. Internet Boston Conservatory is dynamic. Okay, now we've got Jake Rokitansky, Julian Field, and Travis View, the hosts of the QAnon Anonymous podcast. Thank you guys for coming on. Thanks for having us. So first off, you know, I feel like, I feel every day like I'm down some horrific rabbit hole, but I think that the rabbit hole that you guys are in is just way deeper. So first, let, let's get this part out of the way, and that is what QAnon is, because when we hear about QAnon, you know, we meaning regular people like the layman out here it, it's that there's this you know satanic cabal of democrats operating a global child sex trafficking ring all conspiring against donald trump how much more than that is it so originally QAnon appeared on the 4chan image board and actually the concept of anon just comes from a po any poster that would post on these anonymous platforms would would have anonymous as their name and so a variety of different people were essentially role-playing as people with insider information. And QAnon was just one of them. He went by Q or Q Clearance Patriot, didn't even use the term Q at the beginning or didn't sign his, his posts. And very quickly, uh, I think people, a combination of people on those boards who were maybe ironically boosting this and people who were really starting to believe it started to spread uh, the idea that this person was actually a highly placed military source inside the Trump administration, mm -hmm. and he was giving secret information about what Trump was actually going to do behind the scenes to take care of what they perceived as, yes, a cabal of uh, pedophiles, um, uh, specifically child traffickers and a, a kind of satanic uh, a group of politicians that had, you know, for, you know, maybe hundreds of years uh, tried to control the population. So it was kind of Alex Jones, if he were pretending to be inside, you know, the Trump administration. And very quickly, promises started coming out about this event called the storm, which would be the rounding up of all of these, you know, bad people and their punishment. So the idea is he's sending them to Guantanamo. Maybe there's going to be military tribunals, possibly even executions. And all of this was occurring at a time where Trump was not necessarily coming through on some of the promises, certainly not some of the more extreme promises that he had made during, you know, um, his campaign and um, the first year of his uh, of his presidency. And so this really started to uh, kind of create a brush fire of beliefs. So very quickly, this was taken up by YouTubers who wanted to uh, red pill the normies as they see it, you know, kind of awaken them to this uh, great awakening that they they perceived. And this was kind of the kind of introduction to a generation that maybe wasn't tech savvy enough to be on uh, the Chan image board. So 4chan and then later 8chan. So this led to 
the spread of the belief system among people who maybe weren't as tech savvy, who maybe wouldn't be able to log in on 4chan or 8chan, but they were capable of watching YouTube videos. They were on Facebook. They were on these bigger social media platforms. And there was these kind of intermediaries, or as they called themselves, bakers, who would take these cryptic posts by Q and would repost them through uh, um, aggregators that were accessible, you know, on easy to find websites and would talk about them and decode them on YouTube. They would explain what the work, uh, what was happening on the, on the chans, which was the work of essentially decrypting these very strange uh, drops as they started to be called. And so uh, a very quickly, a group of influencers kind of stepped in and started to spread this among the normies. The normies started spreading these memes on their own social media platforms, and it became a, a, a whole movement, you know, within the kind of MAGA um, fervor of, of Donald Trump's first year. And conveniently, of course, it explained uh, that a lot of these bloodthirsty wishes that these people have about their enemies and what's going to happen and the justice that's coming you know, it promised those things were actually happening behind the scenes, which is, I think, uh, you know, a kind of alluring idea for people who've been waiting for politicians to do what they say they're going to do. Now, in this case, of course, you know, it was essentially executions, rounding up your enemies and revealing, declassifying uh, information about a variety of different conspiracy theories. So anything from aliens to JFK's assassination. I have I have a hundred questions, but I want to start with this. And this is this is what's given me the most trouble. You know, if this thing is all predicated on on cue, if this is all predicated on this idea that um, they're fighting back against, you know, a cabal of child sex traffickers, how do they reconcile the fact that Donald Trump has history with someone like Jeffrey Epstein or that you have a guy like Matt Gates who's under investigation by the FBI for child sex trafficking? Like so much of what this entire movement is based upon, the people who these who these um, QAnon adherents champion are the ones mixed up in exactly the stuff that they purport to be fighting against. Yes, I think that that is kind of the point of the movement is to create a kind of cognitive dissonance where you're able to selectively target the people that you think are in charge of it. Having said that, there is a kind of both sides element to this in that they, you know, much like Alex Jones, they hated George Bush and they actually worshipped JFK and JFK Jr., who they were later grew a part part of them later grew convinced was actually coming back and was going to run with Trump in 2024. So it's a it's a complex movement, but it's definitely one that as far as modern politicians and as certainly as far as the uh, 2016 election and onwards, very much targeted Democrats and anyone on the right that they thought were enabling this, uh, you know, kind of agenda that they were putting in this mind control agenda. And there's also within the QAnon ideology, there's kind of a closed loop way of thinking that that Q encourages uh, based based on certain drops, um, you know, not not to trust the mainstream media, um, you know, that that when uh, uh, somebody attacks somebody for something, it means that uh, that they're actually projecting and they're accusing, you know, your heroes uh, of the very thing that they are doing behind the shadows. So, you know, even though information comes out, you know, of, of Trump's relationship with Epstein, you know, there is built there is there is built in mechanisms within the QAnon beliefs uh, that people can say, oh, well, well, but what but what Trump was doing was actually 
hunting him. You know, Trump was setting him up to take him down. He was pretending to be friends uh, with Jeffrey Epstein so he could get all of the dirt on uh, Bill and Hillary Clinton. It's all just like built in, like heads we win, tails you lose. There's always a convenient way to explain away everything. Absolutely. In fact, there's the, the perfect thought terminating cliche that became kind of part of their catalog of them was think mirror, as in what you see is the exact opposite of what is actually happening. Right. So they can they can be accused of everything from here until the end of the earth. And it'll never actually it'll never actually stick to them because, you know, it's it's not me. It's you. Um, Like Matt Gates was supposed to be a a deep state operation to take him out. It's not that he's actually one of the people that that they would uh, normally within their belief system put on the list of people they hate. Right. Right. How convenient. Um, I, I guess I guess the question here is like, why did you guys start this podcast? You know, you've done around 400 episodes now. You've been featured everywhere. I'm pretty sure you're the, the foremost experts on, on QAnon. Why subject yourselves to something like this? I think all of us came at it from a different perspective. I mean, I was certainly interested in the post-truth era that we were shifting into and the kind of spectacle of American politics. Jake uh, had a, a history with conspiracy theories that, that he enjoyed, and he watched them slowly get polluted by anti-Semitism, uh, satanic panic. And obviously there were elements of that maybe along the way, but there used to be, you know, a form of relatively harmless conspiracism uh, that existed, you know, through things like Art Bell's uh, Coast to Coast and, uh, you know, uh, Above Top Secret, websites like that. Yeah, what happened to me was I was... You know, uh, 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 our conspiracy uh, lurker. You know, I loved reading about aliens and ghosts and Loch Ness monster and that sort of stuff. And what I noticed was that slowly, you know, around um, the end of 2017, uh, that the posts in our conspiracy, uh, our conspiracy, were f- more and more frequently about this this poster named Q, and. Um, to, to be perfectly honest, I was kind of into it, you know, as as somebody that I would I would, you know, categorize myself as as, you know, pretty progressive person. And so the idea that there was um, corruption within the, uh, you know, the federal uh, law enforcement level, you know, I, I was I was, you know, open to that idea. And what happened was um, when uh, the uh, the QAnon board on Reddit got banned. Um, I, I followed them over to another platform called Vote. And Vote is basically like, you know, a fake Reddit. It's it's very similar, you, you know, very similar user flow, but it's all anonymous. And so I went over to see, okay, well, well, now that these these people aren't attached to an email address or they're not attached to a username, what, what are they really saying? And I would say nine, nine out of ten posts uh, were about Jews. And, you know, they, they, they would say the real truth about Jews or it's time we can finally talk about the Jews. And as a Jewish person myself, I, 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 I had it was like the end of an M. Night Shyamalan movie. I all of a sudden everything kind of, you know, world into perspective. And I went, oh, my God, you know what these guys are doing are just perpetuating the same old, same old conspiracy theories that the New World Order and the Jews, you know, the evil Jews run the world. And it's just packaged in this very uh, modern, you know, for the internet age uh, sort of medium and travis came more from the background of you know well, travis you can you can yeah rationalism and debunking so tell us a bit about that yeah you know i really came from a, i had a previous interest in uh young earth creationism and intelligent design and these sorts of nonsense that a lot of um you know basically like right-wing people tried to push into public schools unsuccessfully thankfully i was also very online as a consequence of my day job i worked in digital marketing 
Um, and uh, I started, I, I didn't really think much of QAnon because it was just one another weird sort of chant thing until I noticed that it, was start, it started to be promoted by Charlie Kirk, who was, you know, a pretty major conservative figure. I suddenly noticed that Charlie Kirk started boosting these bogus uh, stats that came straight from QAnon. That's why I realized that it wasn't something that was going to, you know, stay uh, in the bowels of the Internet. It's something that was going to be amplified by the, you know, the highest realms of conservative media. Has any part of this been been scary or dangerous for you? Because, you know, you've basically been exposing the truth about a, a subset of the population that already has a proclivity to act in a way that's not necessarily rational. Right. And, and personally, I know the steps that I've had to take to keep myself safe in this digital world like has that been an issue for you have you dealt with threats or, or violence or anything like that i think what go time score mega savings with michael's three-day mega deals this friday through sunday don't miss out i think one of the aspects that we very quickly noticed was that these are mostly keyboard warriors you know, if you study the alt-right or, uh, you know, militia movements or neo-Nazi movements, the risk of actual violence and organized violence is much, much higher. With, you know, these influencers, the Q people, very often it was just um, they love to make up words about us. Like they would call uh, groups of us with other journalists the Q-man centipede or they made up a nickname for Travis, Tap Water Travis. So a lot of it for them is about posting and aesthetics and even showing up to these uh, events, which we went to many, many times now. You know, I think the worst you're going to get is them saying, well, that wasn't very nice what you said about us on that episode, or actually we, we wouldn't, you know, please, please don't attend or something like that. But the majority of QAnon people uh, or followers of QAnon have an actual uh, interestingly... Um, a non-pessimistic and an optimistic i'd say outlook on life you know because they believe that actual justice is coming so they don't have the frustrations of someone who uh you know perceives the system as broken and maybe not serving them they think oh no all this stuff is great and also you know maybe they've lost a lot of family members or friends because they were talking about this stuff too much and so they're finally among people who understand them and you know i think that here and there, there's been influencers who wanted to capture gotcha content on us, um, but we we haven't experienced anything uh, that that I would describe as you know very dangerous. I think one time we went to a Save the Children rally, which was one of the rebrandings of QAnon, and it was in Los Angeles. And the security for the event were Proud Boys. Now, because it's not an a, an open carry state, they were armed with knives, but. The Proud Boys are much scarier to me than anybody who follows QAnon. You know, I think uh, what they're taught, uh, the QAnon people, is to be meme warriors. They they are fighting an information uh, an information warfare. They are what they call digital soldiers, which was coined by Michael Flynn in one of his speeches. And so they perceive themselves that way. If you talk to them, they will tell you this is a nonviolent movement. They will go back home and they will go on YouTube and fantasize about the you know executions of their enemies, but they always imagine it through an external force. So the military is going to do this, you know, or Trump is going to take care of it. And I think there have been obviously outbreaks of violence among QAnon people. But they've often been people who were destabilized uh, mentally or socioeconomically, and they don't necessarily represent um, what the majority of QAnon people uh, would want to do. You know, uh, yeah, I would I would say that they are kind of in a unique position, even among the far right uh, belief groups. You'd alluded to this before, but 
um, so much of what we hear about QAnon is these grand hypotheses about how things are going to happen and then inevitably they don't happen. You know, there was this idea that Trump's second term was going to be, you know, when all of all of everything encompassed, encompassed within the storm happens. You mentioned how Guantanamo is going to be expanded so that they can fill it with Democrats. How do people react when there's no payoff? Like there's no there's no prophecy coming true. So why don't people just abandon it? If if I went to a fortune teller who just kept getting everything wrong, I'd stop going. Right. (laughs) I mean, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of research. There's a there's a really great book uh, by a sociologist named Leon Festinger called When Prophecy Fails that explores this very question. Um, and what people learn is that when people believe a prophecy, they've invested a lot in it, they really, really believe it, and that prophecy fails, they double down. You know? And this happens over and over and over again. Um, and so, I mean, you know, one classic example is, you know, there was a, a millenarian cult uh, which believed that Jesus would return in the, like 1849. Um, and it didn't happen. There was, the, there was a cult called the Millerites. And they turned into the Seventh Day Adventist Church, which has millions of followers today. So, um, you know, just because just because you know there's a, a promise of a you know of a coming up you know uh, apocalypse, a promise of a coming golden age that is not fulfilled, that doesn't mean that the believers stop believing. They just believe that it's going to happen further in the future. It's just been delayed for some reason. This is just human nature, honestly. And like what Julian said earlier, you know, a lot of these folks have um, been isolated from family members, uh, from their friends for uh, believing in this. Um, And so in a lot of ways, socially and community wise, which I think we all we all strive to 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 have for ourselves in in this life. um, The only thing they have left are other QAnon believers. And it is it's difficult. It's difficult to go back to a family member that, you know, barred you from coming to, uh, you know, Thanksgiving Thanksgiving supper and saying, hey, you know, I was wrong. That was really stupid. You know, all the stuff that I was saying about JFK Jr. and the storm and all that stuff. I I, I was wrong. Um, and a lot of people don't realize that most most family members would say, hey, great. Awesome. Like, well, you know, I, well, let's talk about it. Let's you know, that's great. But I think that there is, um, you know, there is an internal mechanism that that keeps people from you know, like like Julian was saying, when you've you know, invested so much time into something. In in this case, you know, four years potentially. Um, cost yeah, exactly. Exactly. And and what I will say is, there were a handful of people, probably not as many, uh, you know, not as many as we would have liked to see. Uh, but after January sixth, who looked, who who saw that, and 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 that was kind of it. Provided an off ramp. You know, January 6th, I think, was an off-ramp for a lot of QAnon believers because here were here were uh, people wearing the merch, uh, believing in the same things that they do, uh, you know, causing violence uh, to police officers, uh, uh, you know, attacking the, you know, attacking the Capitol, being very unpatriot-like. And I think there were a few that did, that did exit. And then, but the people who stayed on dug deeper and splintered off into different sects of of this QAnon movement and um they simply blamed antifa they said these right. are antifa these are the feds actually doing a false flag so like we mentioned earlier there's always a mechanism to process digest and continue on your journey we've just spoken here about why people continue to believe it uh, once they've been exposed to it but how is someone susceptible to believing in something like this? Because there are people listening to this right now who know someone who fell into that rabbit hole, who believe this stuff earnestly. And, you know, I know 
that for myself, for those people, like what we don't understand is how you get to the point where you can, I guess, fall for something like this. Yeah, I mean, there are lots of predictors of um, conspiracist belief, and one of them is a feeling of powerlessness. If you feel like you have no agency over your life, you are more likely to believe that the results of your life are the consequence of like elite puppet masters controlling things behind the scenes. Uh, another one is is just isolation, feeling like you know you don't un, being unable to, to connect with anyone in like a healthy way. You're more likely to find like community in these conspiracist communities. Um, um, but uh, those and I mean, and so the other one is just fe- needing to feel like you're like a hero. I mean, this really connects to the the powerlessness thing. People in the QAnon community really believe that they were part of a movement that would change the world in a revolutionary way, like really profound changes. And um, so that, you know, that really motivated them to uh, to believe this nonsense. OK, so taking this stuff from from the online into, you know, government, the stuff that I cover, you know, we've obviously got Republicans in office who believe in QAnon, Marjorie Taylor Greene subscribed to it. I'm certain that we'll have more after this next round of midterms in November. What does it say that these Republicans are subs- 